The United in Compassion Medicinal Cannabis Symposium will be held in Sydney from the 9th to the 11th of October 2020. For more information and to book your ticket, click on events under the community tab at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Janet Schloss, who's been working as a naturopath and clinical nutritionist in her own practice for over 20 years. During this time, she undertook further studies to complete her PhD in medical research in the School of Medicine at the University of Queensland. Dr. Schloss works currently part-time as clinical trials manager in the Office of Research, Endeavour College of Natural Health, conducting clinical trials and other research. The other part of her working career, she devotes to seeing patients, the majority of whom have cancer and require supportive care. Welcome back to FX Medicine. Janet, how are you? I'm great, Eddie. Thank you so much for having me. Now, today we're talking about a clinical trial that you're involved with. So we have to be secretive about certain parts. You're involved with a certain type of therapy with glioblastoma multiforme. And I think first we need to go back and have a definition. What is GBM? So glioblastoma multiforme, or GBM, is probably, it actually is the most aggressive brain tumour uh, that's uh, around. And what it is is that it can actually start from just normal brain tissues or from uh, another form of astrocytoma, which is a particular brain cell. Uh, and you can actually have a grade one to three anaplastic uh, atherocytoma, which can then um, progress and turn into a glioblastoma multiform. So in Australia, we have approximately 2,000 um, diagnoses of brain tumours every year. They say originally it was 15% of those were GBMs. In Australia, normally there's over 2,000 um, brain cancer diagnoses per year. Um, in Australia, we have a, around a thousand diagnoses of GBMs yearly. Why such a huge prevalence? We're not really sure, but they have actually seen an increase over the years. You know, brain tumor is not one of the the big cancers. It's not breast cancer. It's not prostate cancer. But the increase is exponential. And they're still really unsure of what actually causes it. You know, that they do think that there's some form of genetic involvement. There's certain um, diseases that may be like related to it, like uh, neurofibrosis, uh, mitosis, sorry. Um, some say that uh, radiation to the brain at some stage may actually increase the risk of it. But one of the big things at the moment that they're saying that may potentially be the result of it is um, electromagnetic fields, so EMF. That was going to be the big elephant in the room I wanted to address. <laughs> yes, it is. And absolutely, you know, I think more research is actually required, but a lot of the environmental sciences are now definitely um, linking EMFs to the increase of, of amount of brain tumors we are seeing. Right. And I, I also remember, although I don't know about the type of cancer this was, but I thought I saw a paper some years back um, and it mm -hmm. was based at Royal Brisbane Hospital, I thought, uh, an oncologist saying that there was 
a heck of a lot more parietal tumours being yes. detected. Is that right? That is correct, absolutely. And obviously when you're looking at the brain, depending on where the tumour is, depends on what actually gets affected. But they have seen an increase in parietal um, tumours, which is interesting, which I feel think is actually related to EMF. And also teens were presenting a lot more than adults. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So the increase of paediatric um, brain tumours is huge, you know. And we originally put it down to, you know, my pipes up to your ears and uh, use of those, but we've got a, we've seen a huge increase in technology, um, and especially from a young age. There's a, a, a high prevalence of GBM in infants and young children, which aren't necessarily the users of mobile phones, you know, ostensibly the culprit of the EMF. How's that answered? Like, uh, what are people looking at there? Genetics? It's actually quite interesting because uh, GBM are normally an older person's disease. It's not necessarily a paediatric oh, okay. um, disease. Uh, when we say for young people, what I'm probably talking about for GBMs are kids from 15 upwards. So it's, like I said, mostly the GBMs are primarily in adults, not necessarily actually in kids. Right. Some oh. rare, like a rare event will actually be. In, in children, but it's primary uh, brain tumours in adults. I see. Um, so I guess take us through now the trial that you're involved in. Um, what's the trial centred on? Okay, so what we're looking at is medicinal cannabis in assisting people with glioblastomas. So we're doing a phase two trial looking at tolerability and quality of life uh, for people who have actually been diagnosed with glioblastoma or recurrent um, high-grade glio uh, glioma, which includes some of the um, AA3s, which you get in a plastic uh, uh, astrocytomas grade 3. And basically, we're having a secondary outcome of efficacy to see if it actually works in conjunction with standard treatment or, in some people's cases, with no standard treatments because they've passed that to reduce tumour size or help keep it stable. Right, so okay. So that's a very quick overview of the, of what the trial is about, but we have specific medicinal cannabis that we had made for the trial um, to do a randomization of these two different ratios of one to one or one to four, uh, and looking at around 82 patients. When you're talking about the one to one, one to four, that's THC to CBD? Correct. Is that correct? So the C one to four is more is more CBD than THC? No, the one to, one to four is more THC. So tetrahydrocannabinoid is the, the part that can um, have some of the psychoactivity and has most of the side effects. And all side effects related to medicinal cannabis and related to um, THC, you'd need over like 600 milligrams per day of CBD to get any uh, form of side effect, which is a huge dose. Mm. Um but no, what we're actually looking at is a, a one-to-one is around six milligrams of both T, uh, THC and CBD, and the four-to-one is around 15 milligrams of THC to 3.8 milligrams of CBD. So with regards to treatment of GBM, just standard treatment, radiotherapy, what sort of chemotherapy is involved there? Okay, so if possible, they will try and debulk it. Uh, because glioblastoma has like little tentacles, it's not 
what most people see is a, a round, lovely round, solid tumor. Actually, little tentacles they go out uh, from the, the main tumor. So a lot of the time they will try and remove as much as they can. So a deep bulking, if if possible. Uh, obviously, where some of them are, they cannot actually surgically remove them. So then first-line treatment is radiotherapy and tamazolamide, which is an oral chemotherapy because most of the chemotherapies don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. So they usually take a daily low dose of tamazolamide with radiation for about five weeks. They then have a break and then they have six months to a year on uh, five days of a high-dose tamazolamide per month. I know this is off track of from the trial, but this is something I don't understand. If most chemotherapy doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, the BBB, what's chemo-brain? Is that based on just an inflammatory reaction in the whole body or is there certain you know, metabolites or something that cross the BBB? Yeah, I think there's still a lot more to um, look into the uh, chemotherapy brain, which is a real thing. Originally, they were just saying, you know, it's just due to stress and all that type of stuff, but that's not the case. I think that, again, similar to, uh, similar to cancer, it's very multifactorial. I think that the, the pressure on the body and the stress on the body has an effect on the brain. I think there's certain nutrient deficiencies that are made possibly as B12 may uh. actually affect chemotherapy brain. I also think inflammation affects chemotherapy brain as well. With regards to debulking, do they use neoadjuvant um, radiotherapy there to try and shrink the tumour at all, or is it mainly surgery that's preferred? The surgery will always be first call. If they can do surgery, they actually will. Um, they're usually, if, even if they use radiotherapy, they usually don't do surgery afterwards, not, in, not with brain tumours, unlike other tumours within the actual body. Right. You okay. see, once you do radiotherapy, there is no surgery, surgical option unless there's another tumour form in a different area. Where's the trial being run from? So it's um, being run out of the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney and Randwick, and uh, Professor Charlie Teo is our principal investigator, and it's run out of his clinical offices in Randwick. Now, he's very famous for, you know, engaging with patients who are, let's say, refused surgery by other um, surgeons, and indeed by some he's called a cowboy. Um, how's he involved with this? What's his experience with cannabis? What was, what was he drawn to? This is really interesting because my, you know, you always hear about him being a cowboy and stuff, and yes, he will actually take on, you know, other aspects which other people don't, but he's, he really does care for people. And where we, this all came about, I was presenting uh, at a medical conference that he was at as well. We both presented around the same time and I came up and talked to him afterwards and um, I discussed this concept of using medicinal cannabis for glioblastomas and he said, well, most of my patients are taking it anyway. I said, he said, I'd really love to see uh, clinical trials on it. Let's do it. Okay, so anecdotally, what was his viewpoint on the patients that had taken cannabis? Yeah, he, he thought that they were getting benefits from it. So which is where his interest actually lies. You know, anything that could cure, like in his, because he has like the Cure for Brain Cancer Foundational, the basis of it, anything that has a potential cure or assistance in helping these people is huge. You know, the, the, the prognosis for GBMs is really horrible. You know, yeah. for most of them, they only have a 12 to 15 months survival rate. Um, you've got people at 25% lasting like up to a year and five, the five-year survival, which most people use, you know, the big 
idea it was 4.5%. When we're looking at quality of life, are, are we talking about just things like reduction of pain, reduction of stress, or are we talking about, you know, hey, I'd love to say the word restoration, but preservation of functioning? You know, lack of migraines, balance, um, fine motor coordination. What are we looking at here with regards to QOL? Yeah, absolutely all the above. So what we're actually using is validated tests. So the quality of life uh, instrument we're using is called a FACT-VR, the F-A-C-T-VR. And it takes in conjunction all of those things that we just talked about. We're also doing a a side effect profile. So we're using the cancer toxicity criteria so the National Cancer Institute, of all the different aspects involved with people with cancer. Um, so what we've actually seen, and I, I can tell you this because we've actually completed 55 people in the trial so far, and we've only got nine more to complete, which are um, now just starting, and we should be completed by November, by the end of November. So I've done a little bit of analysis, general analysis on it, on the quality of life. And at the moment, we're sitting around a, a 12 to 13% increase in quality of life um, from the 12-week intervention that we're doing. And we've had statistical significance. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out at the end for um, seizure management, for sleep, yeah. for pain, for nausea. Um, but what I have seen antidotally is also the increase in um, movement to people. So we've had a lot of people who haven't, who from surgery have had significant impairment. Um, so one lady in a wheelchair is now able to actually stand and walk around her home. Wow. Her speech hasn't increased as much. We've had um, a young guy who's like 20, 22, 23, um, where his left side was quite impaired on um, the, the cannabis, he actually felt he could move his toes um, and have some movement within his leg. Uh, we had another lady who was also in a wheelchair actually gain more movement within her hand and was then able to start putting sentences together rather than just words. So we, there's a number of different you know, quality of life and life events that you can see a huge improvement with. Yeah. So when we're talking about this, you mentioned 12%. When you're looking at such a a rare cancer and you're looking at a smaller group, how do you achieve statistical significance? Are you looking at 80 or, you know, 200 would really be something that you'd prefer, but then that's unfortunately a horrible diagnosis and you'd be following 200 people. We could have easily had 200 people on this trial. Oh, really? Yeah, we had 900 people inquire, of which over 300 people qualified, and we could only take 82. So really, the this trial is really a, a proof of concept for a larger trial, yeah? Absolutely, and that's what we're hoping to be able to do. You know, with this information, then we can be more precise in raising, doing a, a phase three trial, which I'm hoping to be multi-centre, um, so all around Australia. Because one of the hard things, only being in Sydney, is that everybody had to fly into Sydney four times. And we've had people from Perth, from South Australia, from Melbourne, from Brisbane, from New Zealand, all which fly in. So what about a multi-centre trial? What's been the general response from the wider medical community? Yeah, so we've had a very mixed response um, from a lot of the medical fraternity. Uh, we've had a lot of people who are very interested 
and, you know, wanted to see what's the outcome of this because if they get a lot of questions, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the internet, a lot of things that's out there, so, you know, cannabis can cure cancer and stuff like that, but which it's not been proved. Mm, no. So they want to have an answer to give to these patients who actually ask them about it, and they're very interested to see what the outcome is, and we've had a number of them refer. Then we've had people saying, well, until you run a phase three trial, you know, I'm not going to really take notice. And then we've had other ones um, who blatantly say uh, it, uh, cannabis uh like creates or increases tumor growth and is really bad. Um, and they've really put us down. There's also so much information. I've had so many different people come back and tell me a range of different things that people have been um, talking in the medical field about our trial, which is completely wrong. So, you know, if they had any questions, they, all they have to do is actually ask me rather than people making up stuff. Yeah. So is there any evidence to suggest that cannabis creates is tumorigenic? No, I haven't seen any research to actually say that cannabis increases tumor growth. However, in a medical fraternity, and I've heard it said a number of times now, that cannabis can increase tumor growth. To my knowledge, I haven't seen any studies that show that cannabis itself increases tumor growth. I'm not to say that it can't. You know, I think anything has a potential for doing stuff because it's so, there's so many different factors. Um, so I, I'm open to the fact that there is a possibility in some people that it could, but I've never seen the research to, to say that's the case. I would think that where this has come from is from recreational use with um, like tobacco versus looking at medicinal cannabis itself. And I think that's where this misconception has come out. And to me, there's this sort of huge stigmatism around medicinal cannabis. And, you know, you talk to it and the first thing people go, oh, you know, getting high and stuff like that. That's not what medicinal cannabis is. Medicinal cannabis is a plant that's a drug that has specific action. Um, and it needs to be addressed as such. And, you know, we need to lose this whole stigmatism of it being uh, a recreational drug. You know, I've heard this one doctor, you know, put it to the same as, oh, it's just like ice and speed and ecstasy. It's completely different. And we need to really change the view of that, particularly in the medical fraternity. They've already got a number of different drugs that they actually use that are plant. And this is, there's no difference. So let's go into the usage of or the actions of medicinal cannabis. You say it's not to get high. That's got something to do, at least, with how it's taken. So how is this form yes. of the drug taken? So when we're looking at this, this is in an oil-based extraction. So it's, um, it comes in a small bottle, which most, most of them do, 60 mils, and it's an oil extraction using both coconut and olive oil. And there's a whole process of it because it needs to be carboxylated to release the THC and CBD um, and then the one that we actually use is an organic one. It's using the whole plant extract that comes from it. And there's no additives because uh, a lot of the companies will put in things to replace like terpenes that they've been lost in the processing. So they'll put in like rosemary oil and those type of things uh -huh. to make it up. Alice doesn't have that. It's um, absolutely complete. So it's the natural, it naturally occurring terpenes and phenols. Correct. This is something that really interests me with regards to um, what Simon Eckerman said about, you know, we really need this entourage effect. We can't just be relying on the, I'm going to quote the word drug here, the THC as the, you know, the poster child, if you like, of cannabis, and now the CBD. We can't just rely on those for the whole action no. of the plant. 
Absolutely, and that's what we're looking at. You know, there's 140 different cannabidiols that have actually been found. There's your terpenes, there's your polyphenols. There's a whole range of aspects that we still need to address. It's not just uh, CBD or THC, and that's one of the reasons when we look at the literature that most of the trials on the synthetic drugs don't work as well as the whole plant. And that's where that entourage effect of it all working together makes such a big difference. You also mentioned anti-seizure medications before, and this is one of the reasons for caution amongst neurologists when they're dealing with their patients who have uh, epilepsy. So what was, what's been your experience with this trial when okay. using the product with patients who are experiencing seizures? Um, most of our patients on the trial, participants on the trial, are on some form of anti-seizure medication. The the main one that most of them are actually um, put on is Keppra, uh, which has no interaction at all because it doesn't actually go through the liver. So it's only the ones that they need to monitor, like phenytoin or um, Tegretol, which uh, they need blood tests to make sure they've got the right levels. Uh, that is more of a concern. So of all the people on our trial, we only had one on uh, phenytoin and we had one on teletol and we actually do blood tests uh, with them to ensure uh, if there is any interaction with it. So we haven't got enough numbers in our trial to say if there is or, um, or isn't, but they do use the same CY450 enzyme pathway. So there's a potential that cannabis may um, increase the clearance of these drugs, therefore decreasing some of that uh, anti-seizure activity, but what we find with glioblastoma, like I said, most of the time they're actually not on those particular anti-seizure medications, so there's no interaction, possible interaction. And can we delve a little bit further into the side effect profile that you were talking about? Yeah, definitely. So the majority of people think, you know, like I said, they're going to get high, but that's not the case. So the way that we've worked it with this trial is that we start low and we titrate up slowly. So our research nurse contacts them consistently, usually every second day, when they're starting until we get to their tolerability, which is based on side effects. So the first main side effects most people get is um, drowsiness. So it's one of the reasons why it's worked so well for sleep. So they may feel more drowsy um, after they've taken it, usually about an hour or so, and then maybe some more drowsiness on waking, so they'll actually sleep in longer and take a little bit longer to get going. The second major side effect is dizziness. So if they wake up during the night and have to go to the toilet, they may feel a bit off balance and a bit dizzy. Uh, another major side effect is dry mouth. So it can cause a lot of like dryness from there. We had a couple of people who had a, um, some mild rashes from it as well, but they're the majority of, of side effects right. that we're actually seeing. Some, some people say nauseous as well because it is an oil. So with those people, we got them just to have it with food and it decreased the nausea from the oil. And the prevalence of side effects, what would that be around? That's actually quite interesting. In our trial, um, it's actually quite low. And I think, again, because we did the individual dosing and slow titration, um, some of the other researchers have actually found much higher side effect profile. I think, again, depending on how their dosing actually goes, that makes a difference. And what about route of administration? Would that be affecting the side effect profile as well? Absolutely. Right. I have a question also about tolerability with regards to not just um, symptom control, but um, compliance. What's been the reports of compliance with the patients being in oil? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> We've had 100% compliance. 
Oh, gosh, okay. Which is rare because we give them a diary that they actually have to fill out. Yeah. And every one of them, there's been 100% compliance. That's really unusual because most of the feedback I get from the uh, oral administration of oils is not good. Well, we had a couple of people who really did not like the paste and they uh, we just got them to mix it with uh, different foods to, to one that they actually found. And that was only a couple of people. Um, but even those, because I think the, the hope that comes with this, um, with what could be the outcome, yep. has increased it. And the lady that I just talked about who really did not like the taste of it, um, <laughs> but continued with it, had she had a 20% reduction in her tumour growth and decided, I'm going to keep on it. Wow. Yeah. Wouldn't that be good if that was standard? It would be. That was, you know, that's not standard um, outcome. But in that particular lady, that was the outcome. And she still had has had reduction in growth. She's obviously on chemotherapy as well. She's yes. on chemotherapy as well. Yes. But it just shows you the potential that could be there. Well, this is what I'm wondering. Like, people want a thing, the thing, to do the job. Why can't it be a supportive measure that helps the chemo, that helps the radiotherapy exactly. to achieve their end goals of reducing tumour growth? I mean, if nothing else to reduce side effects, but potentially to enhance its actual action. This is what I like um, about, you know, natural medicines, about the potential to help existing therapy. Exactly. I totally agree. You know, there's never going to be one answer and not one thing is going to work for everybody. Mm. And I don't expect cannabis to work for for everybody. We've had 18 people pass away on this trial already. Mm. And that's not including the ones that we had on our waiting list uh, to get on. So, and we've had people where they have had increased growth, you know. So, I think there's nothing wrong with looking at something that can actually enhance standard treatment, which is what I think can, this cannabis can do for glioblastoma. Um, and not only enhance the treatment, but also enhance quality of life and possibly longevity. Now, you were saying earlier that, um, you know, you got mixed results from medical practitioners, oncologists, um, from, you know, initial responses. What's your hopes for the future? Where do you think this is going to lead? Obviously, a multi-centre trial, but uh, is there optimism from other centres to say, yes, we'd like to repeat your trial? You know what? I've had a number of people already contact me saying they'd like to be a site. Gotcha. So this is awesome. That is a good thing. I think that in general, they will always be the the haters. Mm, <laughs> you sure. want to put it that way, the, you know, the new things. Yeah. Um, but there's still optimism that's actually out there. And I think as people start to, like one of the things I was asked, you know, what would you like to tell the medical journey? To me is open your eyes and see this as any other drug that could enhance your, your possible treatment. And I think once that actually occurs and they start doing that, I think we'll have a lot better uh, opportunities. I think that down the line that they will, uh, it, that will I, I potentially believe that that will actually happen. I believe with the amount of trials that are now um, being conducted in different areas and with a lot of the medical fraternity, I think that there is potential for turning people around and seeing it for what could be beneficial, especially in uh, diseases and conditions that have such a poor prognosis. Eventually, I'm hoping it would also be on the PBS so that the cost is more um, available and the access, the patient access to this 
is much easier. You know, we always think about major centres as the capital cities, but we know that rural patients fare worse with any cancer, let alone GBM. Is there any interest from rural centres wanting to repeat the trial? They can't. I don't think we'll be able to repeat the trial, but actually what you're probably talking about is being a site for the next one. Gotcha. And yes, the answer to that is yes. Brilliant. And, you know, a lot of people do actually have to travel to the capital cities. Um, And there has been definitely a lot of interest in some of the the more like regional type centres, yeah. still not you know really really rural, but least regional centres, and I think that's an option down the line. I really do think that can actually happen in the next next trial. What I'm also hoping is that Tasmania opens their eyes a little bit too to be able to help and join into uh, the, what could potentially happen in Australia. Oh. Their their rules are slightly different. Right, I see. As a state, even though it's legalised federally. Yeah, which is interesting. So now on to that, about education opening Medico's minds. We obviously need more res- more education, and Dr. Teresa Taupik was one of those people that wrote a course for GPs. Yes. Where's that headed now? Is there more acceptance? Is there more dissemination of this education to other centres rather than just, you know, New South Wales? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of different courses that are being conducted. It's not just um, Dr. Teresa Torpik, who I think is fantastic and it's great that we actually have these. Um, obviously, there's Dr. David uh, Caldicott as well, who yep. actually have done a number of them and that go to a lot of the rural areas as well. That is now starting to go into different states, which is great. And we do need more of that education. There's now some more online assistance as well. And I think that's one of the biggest things for a lot of the GPs, um, as well as the specialists, is they just don't feel confident in being able to prescribe it or knowing what to prescribe and then what to actually look at and know like how this is going to interact. And I think once that education becomes more clear, that it's a lot more easily accessible to the medical fraternity, there'll also be a lot more acceptance. Also, one of the hindrances was the original use of the special access scheme. Um, so now I understand that's been streamlined, the Saskat B? Absolutely. Done a, uh, TGA have actually done a fantastic job. The, uh, they now have a lot online access to the Saskat B that you all need to the doctor to be able to log on. They actually fill out all the different forms. It actually links to the state for approval um, and they just can uh, attach all their documentation for it. So it's been hugely streamlined to, to what it was previously, which is excellent. Um, the TGA uh, now actually can have an approval within 24 hours. Unfortunately, we still need in certain states uh, state approval, which ha- uh, can delay some of that up to like three weeks. Um, but in the general process, it's been made much easier. I think what happens is, that, again, a lot of the, the medical fraternity don't realise that it's been made easier. They still think you have to go through the whole system. Right. I think the other big hit, big hindrance is the fact that, you know, they've got OP words and all this other stuff. They can just write a script and give it to the person and they can just go to pharmacy. Whereas with cannabis, they actually then have to take the time to go onto uh, online, put, fill out all the forms, put all that type of things in before they can get approval to write a script. Now, that's completely different to being able to just write a script. Yeah. And that's a hindrance in itself. Yeah, but I understand that I think... Um uh, an oncologist in Sydney was saying that she, after a little bit of experience, she now has that down to about 15 minutes. 
So it's not oh, yeah. it's not I, unwieldy like it used to be. No, it's actually really quick. Mm. I mean, I've been doing some of these for the trial as well for Charlie. Yeah. Um, and then I, I can easily do it within 15 minutes. Right. Okay, gotcha. So with regards to the future, you know, what's your hope? You, you talked about a multi-centre trial, but what's your hope for the future with regards to helping people who have GBM, helping their treatment, helping their quality of life? My hope is that we are able to conduct a phase three trial that it actually gets recognised, that it can actually be put on the the SASCAT things as a treatment option uh, for people as an adjunct treatment option for people with glioblastoma, but also for people with high-grade gliomas and brain tumors as well. So it's not just the glioblastomas and that it becomes standard treatment. It becomes standard treatment when you go onto first-line things, you're about to undergo, you've been diagnosed, you're about to undergo um, your radiation and chemotherapy after what if you're possible to have surgery, and that cannabis is actually given to them as well. And if we can get it to a point where we know who is going to benefit more from cannabis and not, be that from some form of genetic testing or blood testing, then that will be even more streamlined in addition to that, it needs to be on the PBS. So my long-time goal and term goal is that it will be standard treatment for people with high-grade brain tumours in conjunction with their other treatment mm. and on a PBS. Okay, devil's advocate question here, and that is basically when you have, you know, carbamazepine, when you have phenytoin so- sodium, you have one entity. But when you have cannabis, you have the CBD, the THC, the um, phenols, the terpenes, you have a whole range of chemicals there. How do you know which product, therefore, to use? Because you've got so many players on the market. Part of that is being able to do the profile of the ones that we've found to be of benefit. Um, And also then doing the, the blood test. So not every cannabis, including every batch, can be slightly different which makes it more difficult to say, well, it has to be this particular one. But if we have a range that says this is the profile that actually helps people with brain tumours, it then gets painted and then obviously people can do things that are similar. We're then going to have some form of standardisation. So, yeah, so this opens up a whole can of worms with regards to standardisation. In this yep. case, it seems like we should be standardising for at least four components, THC, CBD, the, uh, terpenes as a group, and then polyphenols as a group. Is that the way that Absolutely. we're moving? I definitely think it is. It should not just be standardised to THC and CBD. We should actually have the standardisation of a range so that we do the analysis. And, you know, it's not going to be exact because it's, you're never going to get an exact replica of it, but you have a range that they need to be in. And it's not, I reckon it's more than just four. Right. So within a range, you can get an accepted repeatable profile. So I guess, well, that that would, that would gel with regards to the 10% that's allowable for even drug manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. Area under the curve variation, things like that. Absolutely. So you have a 10% range of each of this, each of those that you can actually put into a, if you want to call it a product, all that drug. I have to ask as well, when are you looking to have the trial complete? So this particular trial, it will the last person will actually come through at the end of November. 
So from there, I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, cleaning data entry and stuff like that. And I'm hoping to have the, the first main report on, on quality of life and tolerability out by around April next year. So April 2020, we expect to see some sort of results. This is absolutely awesome work, Janet. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for taking us through. This is really important medicine, not the least of which we've got, to, we've got to understand that this is prescribed medicine. This is not going to be available in Australia to um, the repertoire of naturopaths and herbalists and clinical nutritionists. But, you know, this is very important medicine that you're doing to show that a plant-based drug is showing efficacy and helping patients um, through a, you know, what is otherwise a, a devastating diagnosis. I totally agree, and it's one of the reasons I think that it's really important and also showcases the fact that people in complementary medicine that have the, the research knowledge in plants um, can work really well with the medical fraternity to, to enhance patient outcomes. Brilliant. For best practice. Brilliant words. Dr. Janet Schloss, thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's been my absolute pleasure. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.